The mood was cordial at first. At least that's how Octavia felt. There, in the heavy sun of late spring, cool wind blowing, she was being escorted back to City Hall, back to the fortress of the Oddfellows. She would face consequences for breaking curfew, for stealing weapons and supplies, for taking it upon herself to investigate the claims of General Castro and his explorers. But most importantly, Octavia had to endure punishment for leading the young man's squeak to his unfortunate death. The boy's stilted cry rang in her ears, insisting she blame herself, take responsibility. Yes, Octavia thought, it was her fault, and she had to live with that. She had to live with the intense anxiety of the past 24 hours, the trauma that came with it, a lifetime of survival. That was the deal. She would never get over it. She would use that pain to find some way, some way to make sense of it all, to do some good. Her fellow oddfellows led her past the wire fence and the barricades. She clinged to the handle of her rifle all the way up the steps. There, Hoffa and his lieutenants greeted her. He got to you, didn't he? Hoffa asked. His red hair was washed, framing the sides of his face. He stood with hands on his hips. That general and his slack-jawed cowards. You call them cowards, Octavia said, glancing around. For some reason, she couldn't help but count the guns the odd fellows around her held. She removed her hand from her rifle grip. Did it occur to you what bravery it might take to explore beyond the city? To try to bring people together instead of watching them tear each other apart? Hoffa half shook his head. You've been listening to Big Kiss too much, Octavia. It's not our problem. You know that. We're humans, not madmen killing other humans. They're just as bad as mutants. We have a code. Hoffa looked around at the other odd fellows. Each nodded in agreement, some with glazed eyes, faraway expressions. They would do anything the charismatic leader asked, and they would believe anything he said. Hoffa leaned close to Octavia, rested his wrist and forearm on her broad, muscular shoulder. You broke the code, sweetheart, and Squeak paid the price. Octavia looked beside her, felt something in her throat drop into her stomach. She glanced back at the boys she and Squeak brought from the tunnels under the river. Kick's dark eyebrows turned down. He looked tired and confused, but for someone who lost his father, the only security he knew, he seemed strangely content. Fine, Octavia said. Let's get this over with. She had lost the will to argue, make her case, defend herself. This gave her comfort. She wouldn't have to say any more unless she was pushed about General Castro and his cause. She wouldn't need to confess what she knew about the lifeless simulacra stashed behind iron bars not too far away in the subway. Hoffa put his arm around his once trusted friend. He took her rifle and handed it to one of his lieutenants, a man much younger than Octavia. She walked under guard up the steps of City Hall into the rotunda.
Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 34, Witch Hunt. Major McGillicuddy stood in his minimal living quarters in the Phoenix Law Division barracks. He showered, shaved, put on his uniform, pads, and armor. For the first time in days, he donned his riot stick, holstered a projectile weapon. Cuddy was angry. Twenty-four hours earlier, he awoke from a coma. In the Phoenix Project's poorly maintained hospital, Cuddy learned about attacks on public property. The dissidents lashed out against the project's places of security. Their efforts were swiftly contained. Law enforcement, led by the Major's protégés, Lieutenant Baker and Corporal Reed, routed out the dissidents in their secret meeting space. Organizers, adherents, and sympathizers were seized, forced into the project's stockade. Cuddy's long-term investigations led to this moment. He should be pleased, but he wasn't. He disapproved of the way things happened in his absence. Some unnamed conflict built inside the Major. Some feeling he was unsure of how to handle. Was it anger? Regret? Or something else? He abhorred the uncertainty. Things were supposed to be black and white. Makes sense, Cuddy thought. But in this moment, nothing made sense. The door to the Major's compartment chimed. Cuddy pressed the button next to the archway. The metal door slid into the wall. Dr. John Bath stood outside Cuddy's room. You shouldn't be here, Cuddy told him. I've been looking for you, John said, inviting himself into the room. How'd you get past security? Cuddy turned from Bath, laced up his padded boots. There's no one there. John aimed a thumb at the door. Everyone's in the stockade, strapping ankle and wrist monitors on the women, the children. Good, Cuddy said. They're letting them go. John was unimpressed. Yeah, but for how long? Cuddy stood straight, braced the professor. Look, what the hell do you want me to do, huh? What can I do that I haven't already done? I stuck my neck out twice for your friends. Now wait just a minute, John interrupted, aware he was helpless before the major. He took a step back pointed at Cuddy's baton and sidearm. Looks like you've got something on your mind. Cuddy tried fighting back the hard breath in his gut, but it escaped anyway. <sighs> yeah, he admitted. Dana, my colonel. She signed the warrant to rouse the dissidents. Yeah, Bath shrugged, unable to read the major's expression. Damn it, John. She signed the warrant before the dissidents attacked before any destruction or vandalism. There were specific names, locations. It's like whoever wrote up the warrant knew. They knew what the dissidents were going to do, who was going to do what. They knew who to search and where. Bath put a hand to his chin, confused. You've been responding to allegations for some time. I should have been informed. You were indisposed, Cuddy. Bath turned so the Major could open the door. 
Standing in the archway, Cuddy repeated himself. I should have been informed. Baker, John lowered his voice. Read. No, Cuddy shook his head. Those sons of bitches aren't that smart. He nodded for Bath to step out of the compartment. John followed Cuddy out of the room. The door closed behind them with a discernible clang of shaky metal. Cuddy marched through the barracks, turned down a curved hall with Bath in tow. John struggled to keep up. What are you planning? Cuddy, what are you going to do? Without stopping, Cuddy spoke. Colonel Marsh has gone AWOL. I'm going to find her. I'm going to find her and figure out what the hell is going on. John watched Cuddy disappear down the corridor. He had come to think of the other man as a friend. One thing he knew. There was little use in trying to tease out more information, some rational response from Cuddy when he was so determined. John had no way of knowing. This would be the last he would see of the Major for several days. In the City Hall Rotunda, Octavia stood in the multicolored light from overhead stained glass. She was greeted by turned-down faces, judging eyes. She felt their disappointment, their anger, their confusion. Octavia wanted to say something, make a statement, maybe just tell her friends and benefactors she was sorry, but she didn't. Octavia said nothing, didn't defend her petty theft, which would be blown out of proportion, didn't excuse her need to conduct a midnight patrol, no explanation for why she wanted to search beyond the odd fellow's scope of interest, no apology for the worst of all transgressions, getting Squeak killed. They won't be sympathetic to your cause, Hoffa whispered, as if reading Octavia's mind. What do you want me to do? she asked quietly, then, defiantly. Beg for forgiveness? Okay. Forgive me. This is a pattern with you, Octavia. You always say you agree with the rules, follow the code. But when push comes to shove, he spoke louder now, so the circle of men and women could hear him, his declaration. You've got a worm in you that has to get out, that refuses to be a team player. Octavia smiled sarcastically. She had almost forgotten why she voluntarily accepted patrol duty around City Hall. It was her idea. She convinced herself it was to stay out of trouble, or in her case, to stop rushing in, settling scores against thieves, rapists, who preyed on their own kind. Hoffa stood between the crowd and Octavia, the odd fellows drew close, but Octavia was unmoved. They aren't going to kill me, she thought. That would defeat Hoffa's purposes. Or maybe it would send the harshest message. No odd fellow, no matter how senior, was more valuable than another. What shall we do? Hoffa asked the crowd, but gazed at Octavia, eyes piercing, mesmerizing, theatrical. The crowd shifted, grumbled. "'Excommunication!' someone shouted. "'Punishment! Pain!' others cried out. The voices were surprisingly feminine, determined, disgusted. "'We have to have a hearing,' Hoffa said, turning to the crowd. "'A fair hearing, to decide the appropriate, measured punishment.' Octavia shrugged, went to clasp her arms in front of her. She felt hands behind her, bracing her biceps." Hoffa rallied the crowd, his words inaudible to Octavia. She didn't struggle. What was the point? 
The crowd seemed to swallow Hoffa eagerly, as if consuming some precious treat. Then they spit him out. He stood before Octavia, his face flush. He was eager, emboldened. Lock her up, Hoffa told a group of nearby guards. As they seized her, Octavia made a mental list of her accomplishments with the Odd Fellows. All the time she risked her life to scour some building where squatters fought back. Every mission into the center of Manhattan to save some man, woman, or child in danger. She recalled each battle to loot some needed chemical or vehicle part. Then, Octavia thought of those times she was put in the position of guarding, counseling, or punishing a fellow odd fellow. The punishment always fit the crime, she thought. Food was withheld. Prestige was removed. Access was strictly monitored. Octavia never saw someone charged with negligence in the death of another odd fellow. It didn't happen. You went on patrol, you both came back, or neither returned. The guards swept Octavia from the rotunda, away from the angry crowd, down the marble stairs, deep into the basement and undercroft. This is for your own good, one of the men said, as he pushed Octavia into a dark, dust-filled closet. The door slammed and locked. Octavia leaned against the wall, slid down to her backside. She huddled there, listening to her own breath. She thought of the aged General Castro, the handsome Major McGillicuddy, and that other man with them. The robot bodies hidden under the city. How long, she wondered. How long until the technology was found? Octavia remembered Squeak, there beside her one moment, then collapsing dead the next. She should have known better. Hell, she did know better. Then, she remembered the conversation she and Squeak had not long before he died. They spoke of Enoch, the voice in the darkness, the distant radio personality transmitting from Big Kiss Radio in Boston. Enoch was hopeful. He spoke of meaningful things, poetry, art, science. His optimistic voice made it possible to believe in the redemption of the outside world, a world that was bigger than one devastated island, burrows filled with busted treasures, broken people. Octavia leaned against the wall thinking these things, and waited. The Phoenix Hospital wasn't empty, but it was no longer as full as it was after the incident and the squalor. Few of those identified or suspected of being dissidents were brought in for care. Even fewer presented on their own. Law enforcement volunteers were given oxygen, bandaged, or put on light duty. Chief Surgeon Miral Ganaya watched them come and go. While her mind ran wild with questions, she learned to say little unless she was reporting electronically to the Phoenix Council. When she wasn't at the hospital, Ganaya slept in her compartment or joined engineer Donna Chang in the laboratory. Each time she walked from her room in the A-level to the lab, Muriel felt a cool, palpable tension. Fewer and fewer citizens strode the halls. None stopped casually to speak to another. Common areas, sport halls, and food centers were mostly empty. And those that weren't, citizens sat apart, heads down, obviously watching each other. Muriel understood. She thought what they thought, felt what they felt. Suspicion creeped in. Who was an informant? Who was a dissident? Production slowed. 
Storefronts closed. Progress diminished. Everywhere. Everywhere except the lab, where Donna Chang worked furtively, consulting her red notebooks, seeing through ideograms what no one else could. Even Dr. Bath couldn't decipher them. It wasn't the first time Meryl watched the engineer move swiftly from station to station, cable to conduit, machine to console. It was, however, the first time Chang seemed to do so eagerly, a fixed grin on her otherwise blank face. Ganaya observed Donna speaking to herself in Chinese, like she was communing with another scientist, unearthing grand mysteries, solving ancient problems. Meryl hesitated to interrupt. Finally, she spoke. Donna, where's General Castro? Chang walked under a row of cannibalized hardware. Haven't seen him. Ganaya walked slowly to where the general usually lay. His bed was made, sheets pulled tightly in standard military fashion. The bed is made, she said. Donna shrugged. When I'm not here, I'm in therapy, she kept moving. When I'm not there, even I sleep sometimes. Miro looked back at the Asian woman. She smiled. Donna returned the look, as if expected to do so. Well, Ganaya thought, it's something, some measure of consideration. The two women had been through a lot in the past days, weeks, months. The whole project had. What are you working on? Meryl asked, expecting Donna to ignore her. To her surprise, the other woman ceased what she was doing. Chang smacked grease-stained hands together, as if to clean them or make a point. Danielle gave me permission. Her tone was defensive, then softened slightly. I balanced the power output without diminishing it elsewhere, and I'm exploring a way to automate some of the processes. Ganaya walked to the wall of machines she and Donna operated. She stood between her biological console and Donna's engineering workstation. These areas were no longer separated. They were welded, wired together, sharing power, hardware, and software. Mural started to speak, concerned, but she stopped herself and pointed. Yes, Donna nodded. We are now one control and command op center, free of any monitoring by the central processor or any other power station. Using these upgrades, she smacked one of the massive curving conduits with her palm. If I can bring them online, anyone can port into the green stream, into the simulacra, any of them, anywhere on the planet. Ganaya was taken aback. Her first instinct was to search Chang's expression, her body language, for an explanation of the engineer's motives. She didn't. Instead, Meryl raised an eyebrow, lightly touched the jewel hanging from her neck. You've made it so we can operate the robots, Meryl stated. Donna nodded. You, me, Danielle, anybody who needs to. Why? Go back to the origin of our mission, Mural. The central processor selected us, all of us, to ensure the success of this mission. Whether the dissidents stop us or someone is injured, it's our job. The Phoenix Project, maybe even the people on Earth, are counting on us. Cheng pointed at herself, then Ganaya. You and I have to go forward. Now we can do so, unhindered. But who will stay back here, 
Miral asked, glancing over at the transference modules, who will monitor their vitals. Chang smiled broadly, showing her teeth, something she rarely did. The expression was almost childlike. I cannot say I'm not especially proud of this. Chang sat at her engineer's station. She clicked a keyboard. Lines of code streamed across the screen. What am I looking at? Miral asked. It was all gibberish to her. Donna continued. With minimal modifications to the simulacra and the regular absorption of ultraviolet light, the explorer who ports into the green stream will be able to monitor their own vitals, their own needs and accomplishments. Miral couldn't help but be stunned. Yes, she thought. This is a major leap. You've done it, Miral admitted proudly. You've really done it. Well, Chang said, gesturing to the scattered red notebooks, her father's legacy spread out on the brushed metal conference table. Miral nodded. She followed Donna's gaze up to the 24-hour clock on the wall behind them. What is it? Miral asked. I have to go, Chang said, checking the pockets of her lab coat. She removed it and hung it on a chair. I'm late for my appointment. Ganaya walked behind Chang to the heavy chamber doors. Is... is that helping? she asked. Donna turned, looked the physician up and down. She forced an awkward smile. It must be. She looked back at the transference modules, the large conduits overhead. Meryl reached out, touched the engineer's arm, as if to impart acceptance, support. Donna nodded and left Ganaya there, alone. As the days passed, information was announced by the Phoenix Council. It was decided that Maricela Santiago and the dissidents should be dealt with, quote, fairly but swiftly. At last, our long nightmare is over. Conflict and destruction shall not threaten or divide the decent, ordinance-abiding citizens of our shared society. Maricela Santiago and her collaborators will be brought before the Phoenix Council. They will be tried and punished accordingly. The trial will be transparent and open to all citizens. Propaganda expanded. Rumors spread. Fear and anxiety navigated cool, quiet, unpopulated corridors. Everything was true. Nothing was true. Too few law enforcement officers or volunteers could escort all prisoners to the common area for their trial. Detainees on house arrest were required to present of their own volition, those who did not would be presumed guilty. Danielle Devenu was well-rested, polished but irritated. The latest developments in the project overshadowed the work she and her team were doing in the laboratory, on the surface of the planet above. Worse, her access to the Phoenix Council diminished. Danielle didn't see her lover, Gabriel Princip. She could not confide in him or glean support. She rarely spoke with Dr. Ganaya or Engineer Chang. The law enforcement division was unable to provide information on the whereabouts of Colonel Dana Marsh or Major McGillicuddy. Both had all but disappeared. Unlike the others, Danielle saw John Bath too frequently. The academic often cornered her, implored, sometimes disparagingly, that Devenu use her influence to ensure those who were labeled dissidents, those presumed guilty by association, be assured of special dispensation. You know this is wrong, Danielle. You have to do something. 
Yeah, what would you have me do, John? This isn't about you. Bath's face went blank. Even he was surprised by the depth of his emotion over what was happening to others, those he knew, some he didn't. Why? Was it because of his long-held views of anarcho-syndicalism? Or something more personal? Was it because his father, Dearmid, was tried and exiled by the Shadow Council? Who will speak for them? he asked. Who will represent them? Danielle fought the urge to shrug, to show she was more concerned with her own prestige, the mission for which she was chosen. I don't know, Bath, but it's not my problem. Please, don't make it my problem. John resented this. Who was she to speak to him this way? She was the elected. What had she earned on her own? You don't care who's guilty or innocent, John said. Fine, I'll represent them. Danielle shook her head. Don't do this, John. You understand? When this is over, logic will prevail, Bath continued. No, the young woman spoke firmly. Get it through your head. This isn't about logic. This isn't about... Bath pursed his lips, turned his back, strode away, full of self-righteousness, hostility. But Devenu sensed his lack of confidence. She hoped the brilliant professor would reconsider, would use all his faculties to restrain himself. Octavia sat on the floor in the darkened closet. Then she stood, walked the room corner to corner, feeling her way. Cardboard boxes, plasticware, cups, bottles, used items stashed away in the event it became necessary. She could fashion a weapon, but decided against it. Female guards, women Octavia had trained, came to her. They didn't speak. They brought food and took her to the bathroom. The food was unsalted dog jerky, boiled pigeon. The restroom was a hole in the ground outside. Octavia thought about making a dash for the fence line, but no. It was likely the sentries would attack out of instinct. She didn't want that on anyone's conscience. Back in her basement cell, Octavia counted hours, days, two, maybe three. Hoffa was taking his time, she thought. Ensuring whatever was decided by the majority of the odd fellows was something the minority could live with. He couldn't hang her, could he? Couldn't torture her? No. It was excommunication, Octavia decided. She was confident she could survive on her own, at least for a little while. But where would she go? What would she do? Then again, she was so used to being a part of something bigger, something meaningful, if her future wasn't with the Odd Fellows, would she be accepted by Castro and his team? Could she help escort them through the wrecked city, find the answers they sought? Finally, the cell door opened. The boy, Kick, who Octavia and Squeak retrieved days earlier, stood there. His silhouette stood between Octavia and the lit hallway. I'm sorry I have to do this, Kick said. It's your initiation. Octavia glared at the female guard behind Kick. Don't be sorry. I was in your place once. Kick gestured for Octavia to step forward into the half-light. When her eyes focused, she saw the boy looked healthier. He had eaten. There was color in his face. Kick breathed hard, turned Octavia around, moved her arms behind her. She didn't resist as he bound her wrists with thick rope. What's the decision? Octavia asked. 
Before the boy could respond, the guard nearby ordered, Shut up, bitch. Kit glared at the older woman. Kick and the guard walked beside Octavia, guiding her up the winding stairs, back to the rotunda. The odd fellows who weren't out on patrol or a variety of daytime missions gathered around the wide room. Octavia, Kick, and the guard emerged. Conversations died down to a pitter-patter of loud, then soft whispers. Hoffa stood in the center of the room. He waved his hands, as if the onlooking brothers and sisters in the cause were his orchestra. He was their conductor, their maestro. We deliberated, Hoffa called out to the crowd, and discerned the punishment for disobeying curfew, absconding with ammunition and supplies, risking life, and contributing to the demise of an odd fellow. Hoffa pivoted, looked squarely at Octavia, a disappointed expression on his ruddy face, is excommunication. Octavia found the urge to scoff, protest. She waited until Hoffa drew close to her. She turned so he could see the ropes binding her hands. It's a little unsavory, don't you think? They wanted to take you up to the roof and push you off, Hoffa grinned awkwardly. I walked that back. Sure, Octavia shrugged, wondering if what the odd fellow's leader said was true. You know, you're setting a precedent here. Hoffa didn't respond. He turned away from Octavia, Kick, and the female guard. As Octavia was marched out of the rotunda, Hoffa was saying something about how she would be stripped of her membership. All privileges and protection conferred were gone. She will be escorted outside the wire, Hoffa spoke boldly, and shall fend for herself forevermore. Aftermath, a Fire Pit Creative Group production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis, with contributions from Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner. Music by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGrieff. The sound effects used in the production of Aftermath are used with permission by the creators, and links to these sound effects can be found in the description section of each episode. Please visit our website, aftermathpodcast.net, for updates, original artwork and music, character dossiers, and more. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at Fire Pit Creative Group Official, on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, on Facebook at facebook.com slash firepitcreativegroup, and on YouTube at firepitcreativegroup. Aftermath and its story, characters, music, and artwork are copyrighted by Fire Pit Creative Group.